You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, or even 150 minutes, oh we're going to be talking about... I'm sorry? I said, oh my God. Is that commentary before we've even said hello? You said I should interject. We're going to be talking about Russell T. Davis and his story arcs, so you don't have to. Hello, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Elton. And I'm JR. And actually, for anybody who's not a regular listener, that's not Elton, it's Matt. Well, it seemed more popular when Elton was doing it. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> back in a couple of weeks. Oh. <clears throat> I say I'll a couple start, of I'll weeks. Three or four, maybe. <laughs> um, right. Elton's listening to my radio show now. Is he? Yeah, Mutual Admiration. I've got, you, a, I've got a new radio show, which I've not been able to mention yet, or I've not remembered to mention. Oh, what's you it want to maybe mention it? Yeah, go on then, very quickly. Well, it's only on Mixcloud, hmm. but if, if anyone who likes indie, uh, electronic kind of stuff like that. Okay. Your well, sport, let's talk about it at the end of your, the episode. Your marketing skills are failing, so you haven't mentioned what it's called. Yeah. And, where, <laughs> and yeah. where you can find um, it. You said it, this could go on for two hours, so people might reach the end of the, end of the podcast. So. So, what's, just kidding. so what's your podcast called, Simon? It's radio called, show. Yeah. Radio show. Robots on the radar. Oh, okay. Not as good as Phonic Screwdriver, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I like it more. <laughs> you like it more? I like it more. Yeah. Robots on the radar. Yeah. Okay. I'd have called it Robots on the RPM. I'm sure you would have. <laughs> <clears throat> and where can people find this? On Mixcloud. It was a radio show, though. Yeah, I started doing it on, back on the radio, and it didn't work out practically. So now I'm, I mix it and I do it all at home. So it doesn't. It's pirate radio. Uh, kind of, yeah. yeah. So Robot basically, radio. it is a podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Anybody who likes robots or radars and science. Robotic music, yeah. I've heard. I've heard bits of it. Oh, I've heard. Yeah, I sort of fast forwarded through the music to try and listen to your bits. All right, okay. Because I'm not a fan of the music bits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was trying to find well, like I, had, I, I hardly talked at all on the last show. So oh, yeah, it's, it's a bit tricky. But maybe yeah. if you could break it down into just your talky bits. Well, you should do what I do, or what I have done with Simon's things in the past. <laughs> is download it onto Audacity. Yes. And where you can see the waveforms, it's easier to find the music anyway. Oh, okay. yeah. And then you can just edit the music bits out. Oh, and then okay. just make a podcast of the talking, which is okay. only about 15 minutes long. Another good way of avoiding listening to electronic music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not being born in the early 1970s. Well, what music do you like then, Matt? <clears throat> um... Just name three records that will give us a Hang sample. On, we're on a Doctor so, Who podcast. And he I says like, he doesn't like electronic music. I like They Might Be Giants. I didn't like electronic music. They Might Be Giants. Really I love like, They Might Be Giants. I like Jethro Tull. Um I like Dylan Cohen. Dylan Cohen? Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen is massive influence on electronic music. Nick Drake. Well, yeah. Leonard Cohen might be a massive influence on electronic music, but Leonard Cohen isn't electronic music. 
Uh, quite a bit of it is. Quite a well, bit of it is. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, I don't but like not that. all of it. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> no, I'm just saying it, it crosses up. It's I, not purely electronic I don't, music. But I think, it's, that's I think I go, I go for particular musicians rather than yeah. types of music. But if I was going for types of music, then it would be sort of folky, mm. acoustic ah. You've seen that? that? Yeah. Apart from Name Mike Giants, which I grew up with. Yeah. Which is actually electronic music because they started off with drum machines on Oh, I was there. I got a first album. Yeah. I would, yeah. But that was an exception. See, I go for particular filmmakers rather than particular types of films, which is mm. why you won't catch me watching films about that idiot you like. Nolan. I can't say it's Kubrick. Kubrick. <laughs> Get away with you. <laughs> right, we anyway, are. I'm, I'm selling my show short by saying it's all electronic because it's not. But there's a. We said it was indie. Yeah, indie electronic. Cool. Yeah. Well, there you go. You okay. didn't sell it short. Thank you. You probably sold it long and people will be disappointed when they hear it, but you know, whatever. Right, we are going to talk about the Russell T. Davis story arcs, seen as we sat down once before with that intention and devoted the whole episode to the prologue, which was about story arcs in the classic series. Which might have been more interesting. (laughs) Uh, May or may not. Well, we'll see how it goes. Because really, I want to talk about the sort of mechanics of his story arcs. Okay. Because, as I said in the prologue to this, which may or may not find its way onto the podcast, I don't think I've ever heard anybody sit down and actually talk through his story arcs. And obviously I want to do the same with Stephen Moffat later on. That will probably be slightly more involved. Although not necessarily, because... Well, we'll see. But what I would do is we'll talk through... Everything that happens in the episodes building up to the finale of each series mm. that in some way has an influence on what happens in the finale or how the audience understands the finale. Okay. So we're talking about the logistics, especially with the first and second series, of how he shuffles everything into place so that you can arrive at the finale. But also, I guess, we're talking about the character development that gets you there as well Mm. so for example particularly with rose i guess in that first series we talk about how rose goes from being the shop girl to being the bad wolf yeah and i guess with martha we'll talk about how martha goes from being the student doctor to being the woman who spends 12 months walking around the earth yes things like that okay so what we're doing is Anything that has a bearing on the two-part finale is what we're going to talk about. Okay. So, but but more particularly and specifically, the things that logistically shuffle things into place for it. So, in the case of series one, you come in on the episode Rose, and Rose feels like it's a standalone episode apart from that really clunky scene at the end. I think it's the only clunky bit off it. I don't mind the arm stuff. Yeah. And I don't mind the burping wheelie bin. And I don't mind him flicking through Heat magazine and saying he's gay and she's an alien or whatever. The only bit in Rose that I find clunky is the conversation he has with the nesting consciousness at the end. Right. Where he talks about the nestings having been displaced from their planet. Yeah. <clears throat> and... You don't realise it at the time, or you might not. I think, actually, it clicked with me at the time. That's going somewhere. 
because it felt too shoehorned in not to be foreshadowing for something that was coming later. I mean, I quite liked that bit because it wasn't just... I mean, it was also building up a kind of a, a depth to to the story. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, all, it did. I thought it, it was did feel like handled. It was. Mm. I like, suppose it's an essence of the, the fact that things have moved on from the classic series, <clears> even for the, yeah. the races mean, that we know. But it's not far off the Doctor's conversation with Davros in remembrance of the Daleks uh, but I tell you what but, it, but it's at the beginning of something rather than at the end of something that never went anywhere because the series was cancelled I tell you what I found clunky about it and this is particularly after in End of the World you have the conversation about you can hear what they're saying is the fact that the nesting consciousness is talking gibberish and the Doctor's talking back to it right. and we never yeah. get that again okay. because after yes. that we can always hear mm. what the Doctor hears and that that felt really clunky. It was more powerfully done. The, the same scene, basically, was more powerfully done with his conversation with the the, the tree in the end of time. Yes. Where and it, it came yeah. through emotion and through a sad story of somebody else's background rather than, okay, I can see what you mean by clunky. Yeah. But and then that's the next thing you get. Yeah. Is in the end of the world, you get the bit where she looks him up. the end of time. The end of... Yeah, you did. did. You, okay, oh, the end yeah, of the well, world. we know what you mean. Yeah, we knew. Yeah, <clears throat> elevated it one stage. To... Well, so in the end of the world, we then get the thing about him being the last of the Time Lords. Mm. And so the first one, the one with the nesting consciousness, doesn't necessarily look like it's leading anywhere because it looks like it's giving you background about the nesting consciousness. Mm. But actually, that's reflecting on him Yeah, because that's part of his story. It's just that we don't know it's part of his story yet. Yeah. And then in the second one, we find out that he's the last of the Time Lords. Mm. And actually, <clears throat> again, that doesn't necessarily need to have been part of any story arc because throughout the entire classic series, obviously we had Time Lord stories every now and again, mm. but to all intents and purposes, he was a Time Lord out completely on his own. So it wasn't as if he didn't feel like the last of the Time Lords anyway. Mm. Making him ostentatiously the last of the Time Lords, didn't feel like a huge leap away from that. No. So it didn't feel like it needed to have to be part of a story. And of course, it's not till we get to Dalek mm. that we actually learn what that story is. Is there anything in The Unquiet Dead? I'm yeah, because the Gelf... The Gelf have uh, been... Homeworld was... Yeah. Again, like the nesting consciousness, I yeah. Think, I think you're right that it's not that far different because the Doctor has never been particularly sort of going back to Gallifrey for cups mm, of tea with no. his friends. But the way it's yes, formed yeah. and the way it's presented gives it weight. So that's that's kind of an example of the new series doing something in isolation from the old series. So in isolation, it feels quite big, what he's saying, and particularly that bit in the end of the world. It feels like a big emotional moment because of the way it's performed. It's, oh, yeah, it's and it is. Big, sort of. But it doesn't necessarily feel like it's part of a story point of that. No, juncture. No, 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 no. It feels like at that point, it feels like they're making the Doctor the last of the Time Lords, and that's just going to be it. Full yeah, stop. He's yeah. the last of the Time Lords, yeah. and we don't realise that being the last of the Time Lords is what the story's about mm. until we get to Dalek. Yes, but yes, you're right. In the Unquiet Dead, the Gelf again are a species displaced, right? Yes. So yeah. you've got two species displaced, and the Doctor's the last of the Time Lords, mm -hmm. and again at this point. None of this is actually adding up to anything. 
Aliens of London, I I don't think anything really happens in there, apart from Rose going back home. Right. Mm. And this is the Rose part of the story, Mm. is that in the first one, she's a shop girl, and then there's that scene at the end of Rose, where she says that i got to be in gym or something, and does the swing to save the day. Yeah. That's setting her up... That's setting her up to be an ordinary person who's prepared to well, it's, it's jump in, so roll her sleeves up and jump in. So in well. those first one, two, three, <coughs> four, five episodes, before we get to Dalek, and probably in Dalek as well, it's balancing the Rose storyline, which is about a girl who has a, a race and she has a family mm-hmm. and she's chosen to, to travel, balancing that against the story of a man who now doesn't have a home, a, a race or a family. And he's choosing to travel for a different reason. And so the, the two storylines are developing <coughs> in kind of tandem, I think. And then you get to Dalek. Hmm. And Dalek is where you find out... Well, actually, you don't find out what the story arc's about, except you do. Because you don't realise at that point that that is what the story arc's going to be about. Yeah. Because by this time as well, people were starting to notice the words Bad Wolf thrown in. Mm-hmm. And obviously... Yeah. Yeah, obviously... Bad Wolf is not the story arc, mm. but that's what people were looking at. Yeah. And I think Bad Wolf, actually, when Series 1 went out, we knew when we got to the long game, I believe we knew that those sets were coming back. Right. I can't remember. I think some of the previews at that point in the series were suggesting that those sets were coming back. So we knew before the end of long game that Long Game was going to have an effect on the end of the series. But I don't think people tied that together with Bad Wolf and said... People were just looking at the words Bad Wolf and saying, what do they mean? Yeah. And nobody was looking at what else was going on and saying, well, hang on, instead of working out what Bad Wolf means, why don't we look at everything else that's going on and ask what it adds up to? Yeah. So actually, Bad Wolf was a bit of a red herring for all the other stuff that Russell T. Davis was doing. And when you get to Dalek and the long game, that's when it gets really interesting. Because mm. Dalek cements the fact that the reason he's the last of the Time Lords is because there was this huge war between the Daleks and the Time Lords, and they basically wiped each other out. Well, so does it do that? Or does, <coughs> it, does it start actually start telling the story of a time war, but from the Daleks' point of view? Because all it's telling us is that the Doctor wiped the Daleks out. Because he says he made it happen at one point. So it instead of... We don't actually find out necessarily. I mean, we know the Time Lords don't exist anymore. Because the Doctor's the last... Do we not have a line of dialogue from the Dalek where he says, you wiped us out and we wiped you out, sort of thing? I can't remember. I can't remember. The the line that sticks in my head is... I think the big revelation is the Doctor was... The one who The role of the Doctor in... Genocide of the Daleks. Yeah. And also, that again, it comes through the performance as well. Because that's the big... That's the big performance of that story, the anger the Doctor shows. Mm. And then you realise what what it's so what it's been building up to is that that encounter of the Doctor and the Dalek. I wonder what it would be like if they didn't have the Daleks in there. They were gonna have the Doctor phone if they couldn't yeah, get yeah. the Daleks. Oh it wouldn't have worked. Mm. Well, it'd have been a complete it'd have been a series three story arc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crossed with the series yeah. one story arc. But we find out then in Dalek for sure that it's the Doctor who's wiped the Daleks out. And the Doctor being the last of the Time Lords. We know it was a war at this point now between the Daleks and the Time Lords, don't Mm. we? Mm. Yes, I think so. 
so it stands to reason that the reason the Time Lords aren't there anymore is also because of the, this war. Yeah. So by this point, we have learned all this, and yet still the concentration is on Bad Wolf. So Dalek, although we know or we can rest assured that the Daleks will be back at some point, mm. and I don't know whether we knew they'd be back by the end of that series at that point, but I think it was pretty much odds on. Mm. So although we don't know that, I think people were still kind of ignoring, not ignoring, but putting Dalek to one side and concentrating on Bad Wolf. And then we get the long game, and the long game is where the logistics of it really start to bed in. Because in the long game, we learn that the Jagrafess has been put there by somebody. Mm. We don't know by whom. It doesn't take a huge amount to work out that if the Daleks are back at the end of the series and we're back on, is it Satellite 5? Something like that, yeah. Or Satellite 500 or something? Satellite 5. I didn't get that from the long game. I missed that. Did you not? Yeah, the mystery. And also, oh, really? I wasn't... <clears throat> I wasn't focused on the Bad Wolf references. I was looking, the press out, were, looking out for And the them. public mm. were, yeah. And that was kind of the Easter egg in the story rather than... I mean, it was, yeah. I didn't get the impression that it was a seeded narrative arc. Well, it by was the just time, a sort of a hidden message. And then, yeah, it was generating the story of... Yeah, by the time you got to about the empty child or something, yeah. the newspapers were running stories about mm. what does Bad Wolf mean. Yeah, yeah. And yet, the actual... But this... But this was the first series, and what I found with the first series was that everything was a surprise, so you yes. didn't know what to expect no. next. Yeah. Especially when you get to something like Dalek, where you have the last of the Daleks, but you know it's not going to be, mm. and the long game, where you've got this thing set on Satellite 5, and it, you've got, um, what's the word for somebody who's been put in a place to... Ringer? No, but well, you know what I mean. The Jagrafess has been put there okay. yes. by the Daleks, but we don't hear about the Daleks. But we know he's been put there by somebody because there is dialogue about that. Mm. Again, that's a bit clunky because the Jagrafess, again, like the nesting consciousness, is talking gibberish and the Doctor's replying back to it. Yeah, I think they ironed out these wrinkles afterwards. Admittedly, I don't think I've watched the long game for no. about 13 years. No? No, no. 13 no. years. No, 13 years. <clears throat> Actually, there's a real mess at the heart oh, of Series 1, <coughs> which doesn't really have to do with the story arc, but it's a little mini-arc of its own. So, right, you get the story of Adam, the companion who couldn't. Yeah. So they put him on the TARDIS at the end of one episode and then get rid of him in the next because he's useless mm. and he's only out for his own ends. And then in the very next episode after that, you get Rose doing exactly the same thing as he did right. and the Doctor's only too happy to let her do it. Yeah. Well, that just felt messy, having those three episodes all in a row. Yeah. I mean, if they had said at some point in Father's Day, he had said to Rose, you do realise you'll behave as badly as Adam was, and she'd have said, yes, but I can't help myself, and he'd have said, okay, I forgive you. Fair enough. But the fact that Father's Day happens immediately after the long game and nobody I, addresses that just seems I always ridiculous. Saw, I always saw the Doctor's treatment of Adam as being... A bit like what he was t- talking about, like stupid apes in the first episode. He's basically lost faith in humans or lost faith in <clears> companions <throat> because of the time war. And so his treatment of Adam is means he's looking for this perfect companion. 
And so he treats Adam quite badly in the end. Whereas with Rose, he actually becomes more tolerant as the series goes on. Oh, yeah. So by far, even though it is... There's a difference in as much as Rose invites him on board, isn't it? The Doctor doesn't. Yeah. So he doesn't make that decision. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there's a bit of that. But I just, I just think it's the changing Doctor rather than... But, no, I mean... He's a bit of a hypocrite when he... Well, I don't disagree, but I think it should have been addressed. Yeah, I don't... I think having those two episodes, one right after the other without Mm. addressing it, feels like somebody wasn't concentrating on what they were doing. Yeah, or somebody was writing series thinking, well, we only get one series to tell all yeah, the yeah, stories, yeah. so let's like introduce and kick out, because we don't have time to sort of build this up. But then they, then immediately after Father's Day, they introduce another companion. Mm-hmm. First series is so hectic. Mm. And yes, all it would take is for somebody just to drop a di- like, one line of dialogue in there yeah. to say... That the writers understand that it's... Or someone to say to Russell T. Davis, look, you've got three years to tell a <laughs> yeah. story. You don't need to do it all in these all, 12 yeah. weeks. Yeah. And then I think he does. Well, we'll get on to that. So, long game. Introduces Satellite 5. Introduces the idea of the Daleks being behind this system where they're harvesting people. Mm. And har- um, as we discover, they're harvesting people in order to create a race of new Daleks. Um, does that add up? Because they're behind what's going on on Satellite 5 for like centuries or something, aren't they? Simon? <laughs> I mean, I even if it's not... Yeah, yeah. It's like you say, the, the long game um, feels like a bit of a filler episode in a funny way. Well, it's, it's really not. It? It's, it is the most important episode but, in the yeah, first series. Yeah. But you're it's not aware that no, that's why the current is there. Yeah. That's why it fails, I think, because it looks like a filler episode. It feels like a filler episode. You don't really pay attention. I was yeah. more excited about Simon Pegg being in there yeah, yeah. than anything. I agree. I was just watching it thinking, this feels like um, uh, an episode of Dark Season or something mm. like that, something from Russell T. Davis's. Early years, well, it felt it like an episode of Garth Marenghi's death. Dark, Dark place. Place. Yeah. yeah. And actually, it was central, but that makes it worse because mm. by the time the last two episodes come, I've sort of forgotten, <laughs> forgotten the long game and thought, oh, it's recording that filler episode that yeah. I completely missed when it was on. And the other thing is, it. Russell T. Davis is very good at doing story arcs for his the emotional journeys of his characters. Mm. But the science and the science fiction in his story arcs, the sort of narrative logic, I'm not sure it really ever adds up. And he's always and forever coming up with deus ex machinas to finish them off. And that's another conversation. I'm not here to say whether the Mm. way he ends it is right or wrong. That's another conversation which we'll have a podcast on at some point. Mm. But... Satellite 5, the mighty Jagravess, Simon Pegg as this dead body reanimated mm-hmm. on floor 500 to look after these journalists who are gathering all this information. Is any of that really necessary for what the Daleks want? Because the Daleks, we've been told in the previous episode, a single Dalek could kill everybody in an entire city, right? Yeah. So if you've got a fleet of Daleks... 
planet Earth should be more or less defenceless against them anyway. And if they're harvesting people, mm. as we discover, in order to use their DNA to build the Daleks, what's the whole point of all the sort of information? So it's it's censorship and all so, this kind of stuff. So we know that the story came from <clears throat> was one of the first. Yeah, but I mean, how does it fit in with the arc? So I I wonder if. That's all. So the stuff that doesn't fit in with the arc, this, which is the central <clears throat> story, was the stuff that came first, and it's sort of shoehorned into the arc. Yeah, yeah. But really, all that fits with the arc is the setting, which is presumably done for economical reason, economical reasons. Because there's no the reason the Jagrafest needs to be there. No. Simon Pegg could be answering to the Daleks, and he's yeah. dead anyway, so it doesn't matter whether he knows or not. Yeah. Yeah. And even if he wasn't, mm. it, all they'd have to do is disguise their voice as... And not sending pictures of who he's feel, talking to. You must feel like there should be something there which makes you go, when you get to the end of the series, oh, of course that was the Daleks. Of yeah. course it was, but you don't feel that. No. Or you know, or you're told, oh, they were the one pulling the strings. But yeah, there's nothing yeah. or Dalek-esque so about... So something at the end of the long game, like an appearance by something vaguely Dalek-y. Although like at the end of the Space Museum. Yeah. That would undercut... That would spoil his appearance. Yeah, yeah, you don't want anything that's going to be so obvious, but at the same time, you almost want something which is there and... Or just maybe that Dalek... Smoking gun. Maybe that Dalek-y heartbeat, just like you suddenly realise that it's being watched from a spaceship somewhere else and there's that sort of Dalek-y heartbeat. Well, there's a line in there. Just just suggests Dalekiness. I'm Mm. sure there's a line in there that says the Jagrafest has been set up there by somebody else. But... But obviously that didn't have much of an effect if neither of you two remembers no, no, it. No. And I can't even be certain. I'm sure I realised the only bit when I was watching it. I can't it. remember the terminology they used. They used one, didn't they? I remember Crump there was somebody above. Remember the yeah. yeah. Anyway, next thing we get is Father's Day. Okay. Right, so this is back... Well, there are sort of two things going on in Father's Day. One is you can't change time. Yeah. Which, only in the most tangential way, has a bearing on how he's going to resolve the story arc. Yeah. Because, and this is the first series again, so you've no idea what they're going to do. But the fact that you've had Father's Day kind of rules out in rolling back time. Mm -hmm. Because the obvious thing to do at the end of the series, if you've got a time machine, is to go back to before your first appearance on Satellite 500 and stop it from happening or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. So Father's Day kind of rules that out. So, so although, it's, the, it's the Aztecs of the new series. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing, of course, is what it does with Rose. Yeah. Because you've got the shop girl, who's the one who's prepared to roll her sleeves up at the end of that first episode and mm. do uh, gymnastics or whatever it is. Yeah. Do you know what? I must have watched that episode a dozen times now and I still don't know what that line is. She says something about gymnastics or something just before she jumps off. Yeah. And I still don't know what that get line the target, is. Get the target book. Yeah, or just watch it with subtitles on at some yeah. point. Yeah. Or no, if you go on chakoya.net, you can, get there the are transcripts of okay. every single episode of Doctor okay. Who. Um, <clears throat> then you've had Aliens of London where she goes back. And Aliens of London exists to demonstrate the difference between Rose as she was before she left and after she comes back. <clears throat> and although it's a bit, maybe again, it's a bit clunky because Ross T. Davis has got this sort of habit of over-caricaturing things, I think, sometimes. Mm. But you do definitely get to see that Rose is a very different person from when she left, even if you haven't necessarily noticed that happening. 
Yeah. It has happened. Then you've got Dalek, where she's important enough to invite people onto the TARDIS. Mm. Then you've got that scene at the start of the long game where the Doctor's feeding the information so that she can well, be she's, his yeah, she's, host. She's the sort of companion. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah. yeah. And trying to look more experienced than she really is, yeah. but being experienced enough to get away with it. Mm-hmm. Then in Father's Day, you've got her learning a huge lesson about what you can and what you cannot do in the TARDIS. And I said this <coughs> ages ago, the way Russell T. Davis sets up the character of Rose is that she's a character in one of these X-Factor type things who each week has... In the X-Factor, each week, each week you've got to sing a different type of song. Mm. Or in... Um, Strictly Come Dancing, each week you've got to do a different kind of dance. Yeah. Rose's arc across series one is each week she has to overcome a different problem. Yeah. Or understand something new mm. and take it in. And then by the end of the series, you put all those things together and that's what turns her into the bad wolf. Because yeah. essentially, although it's a deus ex machina, well, actually, no, because Boomtown was added because um, Paul Abbott dropped out of... Episode 11, so he stuck Boomtown in. Mm-hmm. You get to be a Chekhov's gun because you get to see inside the um, TARDIS console, <clears throat> TARDIS console yeah. an episode early. Mm-hmm. But it is a deus ex machina in terms of it. it is literally God poking his face out of the machine to solve the problem. Yeah. But in character terms, it's the end of an arc where she's learned all these different things that she puts into use. It's a shame he didn't find a way of putting them all into use where she actually uses all the things she's learned on screen. But effectively, that's yeah. the story is told. She's learned a bunch of stuff. Yeah. You get to the end of the series and she puts that stuff into practice. And that's what Father's Day is there for. It's there. Here is a hoop you can't jump, basically. Yeah. So that's teaching her where the limits are. And there are <clears> elements <throat> that I kind of think could have come back or so things like the reapers the the time reapers <clears throat> were an excellent thing potentially to have brought back at some point because yeah. they're quite primeval sort of you know elemental enemies <clears throat> but they just sort of they're obviously just there for that story it's a tell one story isn't it but whether they're whether <clears throat> they were uh, you know on the possible list for being part of the cl- conclusion um yeah, the only time actually Russell T. Davis might have brought them back, I think, something like Waters of Mars, isn't it? Well, possibly. All the, all but the by Waters final, of Mars, the final of the first first season. I mean, there's you've got you've got basically hints of the time war, and you've got these creatures that kind of cauterize the wounds of time. So those two things work quite neatly together. Oh, it could have happened. Yeah. <clears throat> but but when he didn't, there was no way they were going to come back because no. it had been too far. Yeah. People wouldn't have remembered them necessarily. Yeah. Um, Empty Child and the Doctor Dancers, that's mm-hmm. kind of a step outside because that's the Stephen Moffat one. And the Stephen Moffat <laughs> yeah. ones are always a step outside, but for the fact, obviously, that you get Captain Jack introduced. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Captain Jack... Has, does he have the wrist thing at this point? He does, doesn't he? Yes, I think so. But he he uses it to sort of yeah, because they he uses it they, to follow the, the hospital <clears throat> room with it. Is that not the squareness gun? 
Is that the square in this gun? I'm yeah. Sure they use I can't a, remember uh, if he's got the wrist thing here or whether he picks it up in series three. Anyway, it, that whether he has or not, that becomes obsolete in Boomtown when they pick up the um I can't remember what it's called, that the Slitheen were gonna use to escape from planet Earth when they blew it up. Right. Because okay. that machine thing, isn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh gosh. Again, well with Boomtown <clears throat> again, it's thirteen years since right. I saw it. Well in Boomtown, at the end of the story, it turns out that the Slitheen were intending to get off planet Earth by Basically, it's a surfboard, an mm-hmm. electronic surfboard thing. Okay. And they pick that up and they end up using it. Right. Okay. And that becomes a red herring <clears throat> in the finale. Right. Because okay. it's one of those, like in um, Stellar Earth and Journey's End, mm. in the second half of that, everybody gets sent off on a mission, mm. none of which come to fruition, yes. but it was only to get them out of harm's way. The Osterhagen Key. Things like the yeah. Osterhagen Key, yeah. And Captain Jack had something else to do. They all did, I think. And um, that that's the same here. Again, that's a bit of a deflection on Russell right. T. Davis. Yeah. He puts this machine in front of you and says this is going to be important. Yeah. Sets Captain Jack to work on it. Mm. And Captain Jack spends all this time working on this machine. And in the end, it comes to nothing. And, and I guess... The, the, the rift in time as well at that point <clears> was another one of these elements. I know it came back later. Well, it does, uh, yeah. And I'll say in Torchwood, but at this stage... Well, it turns up in Boomtown. Mm. Everything that's in Boomtown, you should disregard. Right. Because Boomtown was a very late addition after Paul Abbott dropped out of the um, episode 11 slot. Mm. But, having said that, although you should disregard everything that's in Boomtown, he uses the fact that they open up the TARDIS console Mm. to Chekhov's gun the Deus Ex Machina in episode 13. So... (laughs) Did you just say... To Chekhov's gun, the Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. Okay. But it would be a Deus Ex Machina if it wasn't mentioned before. So by mentioning yeah. it before, you change it from a Deus Ex Machina okay, okay. into a Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun yeah. trumps the Deus Ex Machina. Well, don't, don't use But essentially, word. they're both the same Trump, thing. Trump. <laughs> they're both something that's been added to the story in order to resolve it that doesn't actually, actually yes, have a place yes. anywhere else well. in the story. Anyway. So you, you get the impression that basically Russell T. Davis is just just on the hoof, quite desperately scrabbling to get a series out, and manages it. The odd <laughs> thing is, though, you look at it and it's his first series, and you would think the first series was, although it's the one that's more experimental in the individual episodes and where they can go and what they can do, mm. and also the one that's most cautious about overdoing things. But you would think the actual story arc would be the one thing that was most concrete because that's his starting point for the series. And we would imagine. And it's his style of writing as well. If you watch Queer as Folk or later Cucumber, he does write these arcs, these, arcs, yeah. these stories that go on through characters. And yeah, other than that Rose does this X Factor thing that mm. I've talked about mm. and learns all this stuff and then turns into a god and yeah. solves everything by clicking her fingers, as it were, at the end. Apart from that, the rest of it feels like it's put together. Because, I mean, the fact that she opens the TARDIS console to get the bad wolf energy mm. literally just introduces that concept in an episode that wasn't even going to be there until... These things are scattered like breadcrumbs through the through the series. <clears throat> but There's no way on this planet that you would be able to go back through those and say, oh, yeah, of course that was what was happening. No, not really, no. no. And it's, yeah, like you say, with um, the long game, that doesn't feel like it's the big setup for the end of the series. Mm. I and mean, you get the idea that <clears throat> Russell T. Davis writing at the very 
edge, not not the edge of his ability, but this is a new outside thing. his comfort. And zone. he's discovering <clears throat> that he's writing a new thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not queer as folk, which you can have these ongoing story arcs because it's like a soap opera, mm-hmm. and you don't have to have individual stories each episode. Whereas with Doctor Who, you have to have individual stories each episode, different writers for lots of the episodes. Yeah, yeah. And so you got to keep your eye. Sort of yeah. And that's must, that must have been an incredibly complicated thing to do. Well, it needs. Yeah, it's outside his comfort zone because he doesn't usually do. He doesn't usually do plot heavy stuff. No. He usually does character narrative heavy stuff yeah. rather than plot heavy stuff. Mm. So it's not the science fiction that's a bit different for him. It's the heavy plot narrative thing and maybe that's maybe that's maybe that's why the series is so strong when it comes back and so strong now because the original writer russell t davis is taking the the characters so he's starting with the characters <clears> and even though he's not plot heavy then other writers come in who are plot heavy like stephen moffat yeah and but they take they inherit this this shape of this series which is character driven and then they start doing plot heavy. So you, that's what really distinguishes it from the old series, I think. Oh, very definitely, yeah. Um, is there anything more to say about the series one arc? <coughs> no, I mean, yeah, I was going to say about that first series. I mean, it's incredibly popular. You can't take that away from it. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. think it is. A, oh, do you remember the, the countdown between episodes 12 and 13? No, but I can imagine it. Well, they had. On the BBC website, they had a clock ticking down the entire right. seven days. Yes. And um, not just that, but on the BBC One channels, the trailers they had, they had a series of trailers right. across the entire week <laughs> with the clock from the website on them, counting down to when you were going right. to get the finale. And by this point, it dropped to like, Six million viewers as yes. well. I mean, it's not a heavy drop, no. But it started off with nearer twelve, so it's not like it's lost half its audience. Yeah. On average, it was about seven and a half. I think the first series. Yeah. But by the end of the first series, when you're well into the summer sort of thing, you're down to about six million viewers. So it's not like it was. It was a phenomenal success that people were talking about, but it's not like everybody was watching no. it. It was like a tenth of the country or whatever. And this is before. Watching it on catch up or watching it on yeah. Player. So at this point, you're still watching it. Not well. The only you don't way have to watch it when it's on, you can record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, but it's still got well, that, yeah. that sort of feeling. And that's counted in the six million. Yeah. The only additional to that was um, the BBC Three repeats. Right. But obviously, a lot of the BBC Three repeats were people who already watched it on BBC One because the BBC Three repeats came with a commentary. Right. Yeah. So everybody, so all the people who are interested enough would re-watch it on BBC Three with a commentary. Yeah. So I don't think even the BBC Three repeats added that many people right. to it. Yeah. But, I mean, it was a huge success. Yes, yeah. But it wasn't the success it would become under Tenant by yeah. this point. And yet still, they had this clock on the website counting down. Yeah. So, yes, it was this huge thing at... You know, in six days, four hours, and 23 minutes, you'll find out what bad wolf means. But they were marketing the crap out of it. Yes, they were. That's what you're saying. That was the difference. I mean, yeah. I'm not entirely sure they planned to. I think that's something that they devised as they were realising how successful it was being. Right. So I think all of this stuff was created during the course of Series 1 
as they're getting towards the end. Mm. And you're going to find out all this stuff. Now, if there is one more thing to bring up about Series 1, it's that it's the story about the Time War that doesn't really resolve anything about the Time War. It's sort of an addendum to the Time War rather than being a part of the Time War. It's using the idea of the Time War to crack open the Doctor, but particularly to crack open the Eccleston Doctor. Because obviously the the first series is the story of the Eccleston Doctor yeah, yeah. from beginning to end, or <clears> what <throat> we can see as beginning to end, and it has and it really successfully kind of gives him a character arc. I think it it softens him towards towards the companions. So by the end, the companion Rose is the one person <clears throat> he can trust to watch him in this kind of really naked moment of regeneration. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again now. If it had stayed for a second series, Eccleston, it would have completely spoiled it because his mm. story was a perfect story across those thirteen episodes, and anything yeah. after that would just have felt wrong for that mm. Doctor. Yeah. So Tennant coming in probably was the best thing that could have happened at that point. Yeah. In terms of what we classic Doctor Who fans, you possibly get a hint of that with Capaldi when he keeps coming back for another series. Yeah. Series. And you get the feeling that Capaldi's actually reached his the high point of his story arc, and then he has another series where he has to sort of. <clears throat> well, it feels like his story's told, and, and then, then he yeah, gets that yeah. last series at the end. But you get the pleasure of Capaldi being in it for another year, so that's kind of the compensation. Yeah. Right, series two. Then yes, we get Torchwood. Mm-hmm. Right, this is different. I mean, he does. Russell T Davies does in the second series. The same thing he'd done in series one, but he does it in a really sort of nuts and bolts way. Mm -hmm. So whereas in the first series, I've said there are all these things like a mention of The Last of the Time Lords and even the episode Dalek, where you don't know until you know at the end of the series what that was leading to. Mm -hmm. And you can't see how Dalek and the long game tie together and they're actually sort of almost a two-parter mm. setting up the finale you can't see that until you really get to the finale mm. in series two in series two this is before i had the internet and this is i've said this before i'm sure after the third episode of series two we were in the pub and i said you realize what's going to happen don't you x will do y said will happen and this is going to happen in week seven and then this is going to happen in week nine and then at the end of episode 13 this is how it's going to finish up and i got everything about it correct right and that's not me being clever that's just russell t davis being ridiculously obvious Mm -hmm. and i think series two is where he's ridiculously obvious right but again series two there's this big buzzword that goes throughout the entire series that comes to absolutely nothing. Yeah. Really. Well, it's just the name of an organisation. Yeah, exactly. And the word turns up in just about every episode. And every time it turns up, it contextualises what that organisation is going to be differently. I, yeah. It, it, that, that whole thing of things, he just happens to walk into this word all of a sudden. Oh, he's been travelling throughout time and all of a sudden these words, this word suddenly appears. So all that's happening is repeating exactly what happened with Bad Wolf. Yeah. Same thing again. Just like it repeats <clears throat> with the whole thing of the aliens being displaced from their planets, does it yeah. again in Series 4. But I quite like the idea of 
there being an organisation almost behind it's, behind units. It's an almost self-aware thing, isn't it? Yeah. It, but the, it's the, a sort of conspiracy. <clears throat> it's, it's how Russell D. Okay. Davis is playing the series, though. He's playing it as a kind of a... Is the word a popularist thing? I don't, I don't know. Uh, populist. Mm. But the, the trouble I, is, he doesn't do anything with Torchwood. No. And, yeah. I, I mean, let's disregard the Torchwood series, because yeah. it's not doing series two in order to create Torchwood the series. No. Torchwood the series comes afterwards. When, But in series two, you get this episode, Tooth and Claw, yeah. at the end of which you get Queen Victoria saying, I'm going to start an organisation called Torchwood. Yeah. Right, in series three, just to jump slightly ahead, you've got the bits where you get the agents coming and talking to uh, Martha's mother. Mm-hmm. You don't get any of that in series two. In series two, there are a bunch of episodes set between Queen Victoria setting up Torchwood and Torchwood turning up in episode 12. And apart from mentions all the time, you don't actually get any kind of physical appearance from Torchwood. So what well, is, oh, you do it well on Christmas and Major, obviously. Yes, yeah. Well, Cause that's cause before the start of series two, even. Mm, mm. So what but And even then, they shoot something down. On her orders, but we don't get to see or meet or understand I mean, what that, they are. That bore more impact than anything in series two, to be honest. Yeah, but that's what they needed. That, that's what yeah. Torchwood could have done: is describe the story of how the Earth lost confidence in the Doctor mm. and started it up its own defences. And then in series three, if that had been carried on with the Master storyline, because mm. the Master then takes over the Earth, but Torchwood is just Suppressed. There's just a big yeah. line, mm. and if that had been more, if Torchwood had been more of a thing in series three as well, a bit like Unit, but a yeah. different sort of Unit. Yeah. But Torchwood. I, I mean, think, that was the thing. That was the thing that kind of grated in a weird way. But maybe it was because it was essentially. But maybe. Unit. The, but maybe the decision to make, and I know the the Torchwood series is separate, but the decision to make the series Torchwood, kind of took it out of. The main Maybe, series, and yeah. left the vacuum there. But the fact which, that, yeah. retrospectively <clears throat> diminishes series two. So if they hadn't made Torchwood, maybe it would have been a thing. Because once on. you've seen them blowing something up in the Christmas invasion, and mm-hmm. then you see Queen Victoria creating them in Tooth and Claw, mm-hmm. you need to see them, or you need to understand something about them yeah. before you get to the finale. Because yeah. when you get to the finale, it's like six people in the penthouse playing soldiers. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not even a, like a Men in Black thing going on, is it? No, they literally, all they've done is found this gap in the time vortex and put a button on it, and that's it. But there's a, there's a sort of a running, there's a sort of a, a sequence of these kind of big, important-sounding institutions because there's the... Uh, what's the, what's the, the institution that runs the rhinos later on in the, uh, in the Donna series? Oh, the Shadow... The Pro- Shadow Proclamation. Oh, the Shadow Proclamation. So it's mentioned yeah. once in the first series... And then it's that's revealed. It's like a revelation that you never it's a shame you because wanted. And then it goes what away. What I love about the end of the world is all those little things that are, you know the mm, yeah repeated meme and all that stuff. You know yeah. stuff that it's real Douglas Adams stuff that mm-hmm. doesn't actually mean anything. And that's there's a, yeah, there's a vast difference between obviously mentioning the Shadow Proclamation and eventually saying, oh, here's a story where we can actually use them. Yeah, yeah, and 
shoving torchwood down people's throats by mentioning the word. But it's got the same. It's got the same effect at the end. The Shadow Proclamation felt like a big thing when they showed it, and it felt like this is going to change the series yeah. for the rest of the time. Yeah, and then it doesn't. Didn't. And the same with Torchwood. It doesn't really change the series, but I think that's because they kind of took it out of the series, gave it its own series, made that series unsuitable for the original series so that it kind of did come back, but in a slightly uncomfortable way. Do you know what would have been quite nice is if Torchwood was at odds with Unit, mm. which in essence it is. Yeah. But they, they they get to see there's it. no overlap, no. no. Do you know the worst, absolute worst thing about the Torchwood arc? And, I'll, and in a minute we'll go into the logistics of how he sets it up because that's the bit I was talking about in the pub when I was the thing I was talking about a few minutes ago. The absolute worst thing is, he's obviously decided that he's going to do this, let's throw a word in, during Series 2 again. Mm. And so in Series 1, you've got Bad Wolf and the newspapers are asking, what's Bad Wolf? And when he's thinking about Series 2, I mean, this is how it feels to me. He's thinking about Series 2 and thinking, if we throw the Torchwood word in there, they'll wonder what the hell that is. Mm. And then in between deciding that, and actually starting to work on Series 2, BBC comes to him and says, will you do as a Christmas special? And he says, yeah, sure. And he thinks, oh, wow, at the end of this, I'll show you what Torchwood does. So by showing you what Torchwood does at the end of the Christmas invasion, there isn't a single person in the country wondering what the word Torchwood means. Mm. And instead, everybody is thinking, Christ, do I really have to wait 13 weeks to actually see them? Mm. Because that's what happens. You've already been in... Like I say, in the Christmas invasion, you don't get any kind of clue about Mm. what Torchwood is, apart from the fact that they blow up aliens. So as far as anybody's concerned, as you're watching Series 2, every week, all you're being told about is this organisation being referenced that blows up aliens. But they they kind of bust it all open anyway in Tooth and Claw. Yeah. Victoria tells us what it is. What it's going to be, yeah. In quite explicit detail. But, I know, it's crazy. Yeah. So why then, I mean, school reunion, yeah, mention of Torchwood in there perhaps, but then the ridiculous thing about school reunion is why would there be a mention of Torchwood? Why would Torchwood not be there in the school mm. looking at the aliens? Why are Torchwood not at Alexandra Palace in the Idiot's Lantern mm. checking out what's going on there? Yeah. All this kind of stuff. Well, isn't Sarah Jane Smith talking about them? Yeah, it's just... But I, again, I don't mind that so much because there's something ridiculously invisible about Torchwood. When, so I know that, I know that it's an element of the way that story's told, but yeah. it's the same, the same question. Why, where was Torchwood during Spearhead from Space? Or ambassadors of death mm. and actually you can say well they weren't invented then but you can also I don't know that's but it's fine. also more interesting to think of them as being this mysterious invisible behind mm. the scenes mm. so they were there kind of just... like Knights, Knights Templar is it yeah. yeah yeah that kind of thing and that's quite and I think that's what that's not necessarily what they were going for but that's the uh, the lasting effect I have Torchwood well I absolutely don't mind that where was Torchwood when such and such before they were created in the yeah. series because if you weren't allowed to create things in the series that hadn't been <laughs> mentioned in before in the series. Yeah. You'd never come up with anything. Yeah. But what I, but I, like I say, what I do mind is the fact that you show them blowing something up, and then yeah. you see Queen Victoria telling you what yeah. they are, and then you pretend it's still a mystery. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, you pretend they're the stories quite. Yeah. No, but the logistics of series two. Yeah, I mean, this will take about three minutes. Mm. Mickey's invited on board the TARDIS. 
Then you get a story set on a parallel Earth. Mickey stays behind on the parallel Earth. Rosa's dead father happens to be on the parallel Earth. Rosa's parallel mother gets killed off on the parallel Earth. And but and before that story was even shown, I'd seen a picture from episode 7 that didn't have Mickey in. And I said, well, that's it. Mickey stays behind on parallel Earth. And the rest of the jigsaw pieces just fell into place. The only way that series could end is with Rose, Mickey, Jackie and Pete together on the parallel Earth at the end with the Doctor having no way to get them back. That was the only way that series could go. And it's and it's not clunky, it's just really obvious. Mm. As soon as you've seen School Reunion and Rise of the Cybermen, mm. obviously Girl in the Fireplaces, Stephen Moffat taking a sideways step again, but as soon as you've seen School Reunion and, and um, Rise of the Cybermen, you can see exactly how he's moving the pieces around yeah. to get to the finale. Yeah. And whereas with the Dalek one... What he was doing was setting things up within the fictional narrative. Mm-hmm. In um, series two, other than that, it will be parallel Cybermen coming through the rift. There's not really a lot of setup in series two for things that are going to happen at the end. Because no. Rose is already... I mean, he does the um, Rose and the Doctor are too full of themselves thing. Right. But that's not really necessary for what happens when you get to the end. No. It's, it's not a consequence of it. No. He makes it as if it's a punishment for them getting too big for their boots. Mm. But that makes it less of a tragedy yeah. than if they hadn't got too big for their boots and were just really good people doing mm. really good things and totally in love who get torn apart at the end of the mm. series. So the too big for their boots thing, in a way, kind of spoils it. Mm. So... And I mean, we we just talked through series one, and in every episode, I pointed at something and said that has an effect on what happens at the end of the series, right? But in series two, what episodes can we point at and say that has an effect other than the Cybermen two-parter? I I guess, and obviously, Tooth and Claw. In series two, it's. There's something slightly different and it's entirely to do with the chemistry between David Tennant and Billy Piper. Mm. But also, and that's not to discount writing, because there's a particular relationship that the Tenth Doctor has with Rose that the Ninth Doctor doesn't have with Rose because the Tenth Doctor is a new, a new developing being. And I think in each story you see that, that sometimes getting more developed but most of all you get you get involved in their relationship a bit more so it's actually a love story I think it kind of messes that up again though with New Earth being the first trip because mm. New Earth you spend a good part of that episode with either him inhabited by Cassandra or her inhabited by Cassandra yeah so the relation so the first time they get to develop their relationship mm. they don't get to develop their relationship so, I, yeah. so New Earth aside, I think New Earth. I quite like some of New Earth, but I think it's a terrible episode in that first but I think, part. But I think by the time Doomsday comes along, the final, the final episode comes along, that moment of separation is undeniably affected. Oh yeah, and you know the person I was with was in tears. Yeah, yeah. It's remembered as being the oh. moment, the first moment that people have cried at. In years for Doctor Who, and that has to have come for. That's not just about how it's played in the moment. That's about 
this building up over the series. I think. Of the relationship. Yeah. And but I think what I want to look at done. is the logistics of how he shuffles mm. his pieces into place to get there. Yeah. There's n- I don't think there's anything in... I can't think of anything in any of the episodes that sets it up other than the Cyberman two-parter, yeah. in the same way as episodes like Dalek mm. and Boomtown and The Long Game are yeah. setting things up for the finale. But maybe the he doesn't need to. He maybe doesn't. Maybe he's got more confidence in his, in his characters because by the end it is successful. It's but, I think, but I think the most successful story arcs are the ones where every episode feeds into it, even if just a little bit. Like in um, Series 5, and we'll talk about Series 5, obviously, mm-hmm. when we talk about Moffat, but something like Victory of the Daleks. Yes. At the end, you've got the bit where the robot's supposed to detonate yeah. and Amy talks him out of it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's in that scene, she learns something that she will use in the finale to bring the Doctor back. I think seeding, seeding those is more intellectually satisfying. When yes. you can see the mechanics of how it's done, or you can see, or well, you can look back and almost see the visible mechanics. Yeah, yeah, you can look back and see it. But I think in series two, it's, it might not be as intellectually satisfying as the first series. There's no, it's not like clockwork. But again, I think his intention was to make that final parting between the Doctor and Rose to be emotionally affecting, <clears> and <throat> it really is. And that's come from somewhere. In the series, it's not intellectually as, as clicking together, but emotionally, I think it works. But it really feels, well. <clears throat> but it makes the story feel disjointed. Yeah. Series one feels like a very compact, consistent yeah. story. Yeah. Series two feels like it has bits of a story in it, mm. and the rest of it is just separate. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think the issue, not the issue, I think, I think why it's not as satisfying is because when Stephen Moffat does the same thing in Series 6, the Moffat episodes are the ARC episodes, and the other episodes are the non-ARC episodes. So there's a kind of... There's something that distinguishes where you're in plot and where you're in non-plot. And I think the mid-series breakouts, because the way things like X-Files and what have you had worked, was that you'd have an ARC episode at the start, ARC episodes either side of the break, mm. and then an ARC resolution at the end of the series. Yeah. And that's what Moffat does. But in series two, you don't know, you don't know what's important. No. And I think, and I, I don't know, but I think that maybe throws an audience a little bit when you don't know what's Possibly. important. Possibly. Or not throws an audience, but when you get to the end of the series, it makes it feel slightly less satisfying. But on the other hand... The thing I, I found really boring eventually about the X-Files is that you knew. Story yeah, yeah, yeah. Art story and, then, <clears throat> and if you keep on doing that, whereas... Well, that's what I mean. Whereas if you have, like, if you mix you it up... You shouldn't... I think season, yeah. two, season two is successful, in a way. It's not successful in in the same way that series one is successful or the Moffat stories is successful. No. It's successful in a different way. <laughs> but Moffat only does that thing once in that series. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like... But... but, but but what I'm saying is, when Russell T. Davis does it in series two, I, all I'm saying is it just feels less satisfying yeah, yeah. when you get to the end, because it felt like a lot of the episodes mm. weren't achieving anything. Yeah. yeah. Then you get to series three, I suppose, mm-hmm. and the story in series three is just about. Well, I've talked about this before, the Martha thing. Mm. I and again, this happens in series four, where the timing all seems to be out. So the Martha thing, 
her first trip in the TARDIS, we'll talk about Martha and then we'll talk about the arc afterwards, but Martha, her first trip in the TARDIS lasts for, I'm trying to work out which way around it is now, five or six episodes. Right. No, six episodes. Yeah. He says to her at the end of the first episode, would you like to go for a trip, one trip? Mm. And then they land in the Shakespeare Code and then he's, oh, but I must show you the future as well. So you get gridlock. And then they go on an accidental detour to the Daleks. Mm -hmm. And then she arrives home finally in episode six, the Lazarus experiment. Right. So her one first, her first day in the TARDIS has lasted six episodes. Mm. And then the next seven episodes of that series, including an episode that she and the Doctor aren't in. Mm -hmm. So the next six episodes really that she and the Doctor are in is the entire next year and a bit in the TARDIS. Right. And that... Uh, so... <clears throat> so that, to me, feels hugely unsatisfactory because it's so out of balance. Right. Six okay. episodes for one day, yeah. followed by six episodes for a year and more. Yeah. But... And it's not just because of the time thing, but what feels unbalanced about that is that he spends six episodes introducing you to Martha. Yeah. And then she only gets six episodes to develop into the character that walks around the earth for 12 months in the last episode. Yeah. Because by the time you get to Lazarus experiment, she's still with a companion. You get the, Oh, this is what's happening. And then after they've realized what's happening, is when they start to take it on board. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When you learn something, you have to understand what it is, and then you have to take it on board. Mm. And Martha spends six episodes learning what something is before right. she starts taking it on board. Yeah. So for me, the balance in there is completely out. Maybe there needs to be another series of Martha. There Maybe does. That's, that's the problem. But it's, she was always going to be the woman who spent 12 months walking around to the earth at the end of that first series. Right. And that's where the issue comes in, I think. Yeah. Is that... It's the trouble with gap years. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you, I just... I like the way he takes his time to introduce her across those first six episodes. Yeah. I think that works. Mm. But I think what doesn't work is the fact that in the next six episodes, she's got to go from having been introduced to being that woman who spends 12 months yes. walking around the earth. Yeah. I don't think her character pays off at the end of episode 13. No. And I'm it, not loading that. I helps. think most people thought that too, to yeah. be honest. It helps that five of those six final episodes are some of the greatest episodes <laughs> that the new series has, has produced. Well, it does. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think in series three, he knocks the story arc out of the park after yeah. fudging it in series two. Yeah. <coughs> What with the the with the pocket watch and stuff, and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In series two, everything he opposite, everything he introduces is really obvious, mm. and then in series three, he swings it completely in the other direction and shows that he can, yeah, by introducing a lot of stuff that you I mean, don't that, think. I mean, that pocket watch, the pocket watch, really is oh, a great hidden, yeah. Because I wasn't expecting that. So when Derek Jacobi pulls it out, yes. That's a genuine sort of yes. twist and a surprise. And even, actually, even though I think it was spoiled for me that he was the master. Oh, was it? Yeah. I, but, yeah, I think everybody was talking about the fact that he might be. I yes. don't think anybody knew for sure. No. So we all. So the way it worked for me, and I guess maybe the way it worked for you, is I went into that episode thinking he probably was the master, but I didn't know. And right. when he pulls the pocket watch out, yeah. it's not 
it's not a moment of, oh, he's the master. Yeah. It's a moment of, oh, wow, he so he is the master, yeah. as it were. But is doesn't that, know it. As well. And he doesn't know it, yeah. yeah. Is that what you got? Yeah, yeah. I, think so. I think so. I can't I can't remember how explicitly it was it was spoiled. For me. It was rumoured, but I don't think any press had said it. No. Oh, no. None I, of the official press had said it. And of course, we had the whole You Are Not Alone thing. Yes. Yeah. Which again was seeded, but so obscure. It's slightly clunky. Yeah. <laughs> That's, this is, this yeah. is why I say it's almost. I don't know what the word is, really. Yeah. It's it <coughs> almost. Uh, Superficial? Maybe, yeah. Well. It's almost breaking the fourth wall. It's almost. Yeah. Yeah. You Are Not Alone and His Name Is Yana is ridiculous. Yeah. It doesn't fit together with any kind of logic. No. But it's but, saved by the pocket watch. But, but yeah, I think it was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's saved by the pocket watch and by, again, Derek Jacobi's performance yes. mm. as a man who is the most evil man in the universe but doesn't <laughs> but doesn't know it. Yeah. And that you really need a good actor to kind mm. of first yeah. spend half the episode being a really nice sort of slightly ditzy professor mm. and then see that kind of gradual that gradual sort of corruption of that and then the sudden sort of flip into mm-hmm. oh, yeah. And series three goes back the other way in that there's not a single episode in series three other than Blink again, the Stephen Moffat one, mm. that doesn't feel like it was part of the story. So... <clears throat> what does 42 bring to it? Well, I'll get to okay. 42 okay. in a second, but it does very okay. much so. Oh, 42 is huge. Right, okay. You're forgetting the phone call that Martha makes, aren't you? Probably. To her, to her parents. Martha yeah, phones her mother and oh, Saxon's men are there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Which is the follow on from. Okay, so let's do that. In the Lazarus experiment. Yeah. Martha, as mother, gets to meet the doctor, sees that the doctor's putting her daughter in danger, and he's saying to Martha, What the hell are you doing? Mm. And in terms of Jackie, because that's exactly the same sort of thing that might have happened with Jackie. Mm. But Jackie meets the Doctor and the Doctor explains and kind of it's okay. Yeah. But in the Lazarus experiment, when... Um, What's Martha's mother called? Stop mother one. <laughs> okay, when Martha's mother <laughs> is saying to Martha, what the hell are you doing? Yes. Instead of the Doctor coming to her and saying, no, look... I'll look after her or whatever. Yeah. Saxon's men come to her and say, well, do you want to do something about that? Mm. But all we get in the Lazarus experiment is Saxon's men coming to her and yeah. saying, look, do you want to do something about that? And you don't know what she says. Mm. Because any parent, given a choice between betraying the child and not betraying the child, most parents would go with not betraying the child. Yeah. So you don't expect her to have betrayed the child. Mm. But then... 42 is where you discover that she has betrayed the child. So it's massive. Yes. Although it doesn't feel like it, but there's something in there that is. Were you going to say something? I was going to say was that the the, the kind of Saxon things kind of doing what you wanted Torchwood to do in the previous series. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And I think it's a bit clunky in series three. Mm. I don't think it's anything like as well handled as the pocket watch, but still the fact that it's there 
deflects your attention away from the pocket watch. If you'd have yeah. seen the pocket watch and the fact that the Doctor could have disguised himself and you'd heard there were rumours that the Master was going to be in it, mm. you might have put two and two together and said the Master will have a pocket watch. But, mm. So it's going to be a character who doesn't realise he's the Master. But because you've got all the sacks and stuff, you think the Master's already there, so you don't expect him to turn up somewhere else mm. not realising he's the Master. But in a weird way, for fans, the pocket watch itself is disguised because mm. we know that human nature is based on the book. Yeah. So we automatically think, well, human nature is going to be a self-contained Separate, story sep- yes. based on a book. Yes. It's going to be an adaptation of books. So it's not going to be part of a... It's in the past. It's not going to be part of, a, part of any story, story arc. arc. Yeah, yeah. And then that's part of the surprise. Yes. So actually, it's almost like the pocket watch. Human nature is disguising its true nature. Yes. Because of its origins. It's, oh, looking it's, like, it's looking like an adaptation of a novel that turns out to be something big. And I think... Um... Oh, I should mention the first few episodes. And the first few episodes feel necessary because they're introducing Martha, right? Mm. And again, like I said, I don't think... I think that bit's quite well handled. I think it's what he does with Martha afterwards. Because, I mean, well... Although, to be fair, in human nature, also Martha gets separated from the Doctor and has to look after him without him realising that she's looking after him, which is what happens in episode 13. Well, I think that... So, there are things... I think that final episode is... A, a bit of a clunker. Up to then, I think the second mm. like, the sound of drums, I think is really good and really sets up interesting things and it's like a good sort of conspiracy thriller sort of chase story. But that final episode... I don't know. I, think, I don't think it's that bad. The final one? Yeah, I think it's okay. I think most of the... I, th- I think people <laughs> don't like the fact that you did the Dobby Doctor thing. And people don't like the fact that he does the rising like Jesus from the grave thing at the mm. end. Yeah. But actually, I think series three makes more plot sense than any of Russell T. Davis's other series, to I be honest. It's got, it's got good elements in it. I think um, he sets I'm not things talking, up. I'm not talking from a story up point of view. I'm talking from a following on from Blink, Human Nature, Utopia. And the sound of drums. Oh, yeah. Then you get the final episode. And to be honest, after that sort of series of episodes, that sequence of episodes, the final episode would have had to have been Talons of Wang Chiang, sort of condensed into super powerful. But there are things like the Archangel Network, Mm. which is set up as something that the Master uses to hypnotise the population of Earth. Mm. So when you use that against him at the end of the story... That is, for once, an example of Russell T. Davis not doing a Chekhov's gun on Deus Ex Machina, but yeah. doing something that's integral, using something that's integral to the story to solve the story. Yeah. And you don't get that with Russell T. Davis hardly ever. So I think in, I, I think <clears throat> the way the last episode is handled is not necessarily the greatest. Yeah. But I think the plot elements, which I suppose is what we're here to talk about, mm. I think it's the most successful of all of his... Right. Yeah. Finales, really. Mm. Um, is there anything else about series three? We are whistling through it slightly faster than I thought we would. <laughs> no, we're not. Are we not? No, no. We're not an hour and a half or anything. One hour thirteen so far. Oh, are we? Yes. Oh, we're not going as fast as I thought we were. I thought we were about 45 <laughs> minutes. Okay, maybe not then. Well, we're not going to split it because I don't think there's a huge amount to talk about in the next two, being the specials as well. Yes. I mean, it's the story of the Tenth Doctor's death. <clears throat> that's, the story, yeah. that's the main story arc as it's going through. Well, Series 4, though. Hmm. Series 4, I don't think there's a story arc. 
I don't think there's a story arc at all in series four. He mentions things that will turn up at the end. The bees have gone missing. There are planets going missing. But mentioning things that turn up at the end is the Chekhov's gun thing. There's a, it's, it's the story of Donna, though. It's a yeah. character arc as opposed to a story arc, isn't it? Yeah. But... Educating Donna. <clears throat> and there's a sort of a tragic irony because the whole series is about opening Donna's eyes to the universe and then taking and then that knowledge reset. away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of Planet of the Ood, Donna reaches a place which she doesn't develop from. Hmm. So... I think it flubs that as well because Donna's entire development takes place in three episodes and then the character treads water for the next well, until eight. She, until she has the sort of the ultimate the turn up, left. upgrade. No, I'm thinking of the Doctor Donna. Oh, moment. well, we'll get so to that in a minute. All yeah. artificially sort of implanted. But that is the sort of... That is the kind of Donna seeing the universe <clears> completely because she suddenly sees it through the Doctor's eyes. But, but in turn or left... Turn left yeah. the Donna, well, the Donna in turn left is no more advanced than the Donna who starts crying when she sees the Ood in Planet of the Ood. Mm. And again, he does that thing at the end of Planet of the Ood where the Ood tell the Doctor and Donna, despite the fact that they're only three episodes into 13, mm. your song is ending soon. Yeah. So they're told at the beginning of their journey that their journey is over. Yeah. And at the beginning of their journey, there's no more development to be found in the rest of the journey. Mm. So although... Episodes 4 to 10 are a lot of fun, mm. maybe, for the characters. There is nothing that happens anywhere between episodes 4 and 10 that's, that feels necessary or relevant. Is there? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm just trying to... Well, I, think, the... I mean, the brilliant thing, you know, obviously I'm a Donna fan, and, and the brilliance of her and the irony of her is that of all those companions particularly in the rtd era uh i suppose to an extent the moffat era as well you've got so many of the companions aspire to the doctor she's one of the few companions who actually is quite a self-contained yeah entity there's no getting around who donna is yeah and she's she's never trying to be the doctor which is ironic considering she becomes she becomes the yeah because she she becomes almost an equal to him yeah and maybe that's brilliant and maybe that makes it more fitting that at the end of that, he has to disabuse her of that. Yeah. But uh, it still doesn't make it nice. Hmm. Um, there are things in Series 4 that are worth talking about, <clears throat> if only because of how they work against the story arc instead of for it. In the two-parter, the Sontaran two-parter, Martha turns back up mm-hmm. and sticks around for the fish story, yes. despite having nothing to do. In the fish story. Well, the fish story is, is kind of the the point where you think, ah, this is where the story arc is coming. We've got a, ge- a genetic relative of the Doctor and has gone off in a, a space rocket on her own. She is bound to come back in the story, in the series conclusion, to help fight Daleks, presumably. And it's just... Nothing. No. And flies, in... Flies away to big finish. And in... Um... The, the the Sontaran two-parter, Unit are introduced, so you think Unit are going to have a massive presence at the end. But really, for all you... There are so many people in the end mm-hmm. that that the concentration is entirely on the companions. Yes. That, uh, Unit are in there, I'm sure. I remember Unit being in there, but it's, it's such a minimal way. 
so the Sontaran story is not setting you up for Unit to have a big presence at the end. It's not setting Martha up to be the big returning companion at the end because she's just one of many. So Martha's presence in the middle of the series is not setting you up for Martha to return at the end because everybody's returning at the end regardless of whether we're in the middle of the series or not. So that series conclusion is less about having been built up over the series. It's the opportunity to bring the three... The three different products together: the yeah, Sarah yeah. Jane Adventures, Torchwood, and Doctor. Well, it, it, it does, but it's more about Rose and Martha coming back and, and having and all the companions yeah, together, yeah. and Jack and everybody else. Yeah, I think Sarah Jane Adventures and um, Torchwood being a part of it is a byproduct because they mm. don't really have much to do. And ironically, it's really the Ood that <laughs> that come back ultimate, ultimately, yeah, for the for the Doctor's story arc, and they're the, the sort of the I mean, the most exciting thing about the Ood coming back is they're voiced by Brian Cox. Yeah, I was just going to say Brian Cox. But it's kind of one of the worst... I mean, it's a real waste of Brian Cox, who might well, have physically been in it. If, potentially. Yeah, he could always be in it. There's nothing yeah. to stop him being in it. They obviously got him... They obviously needed somebody to do yeah. half an hour's worth of voice recording yeah. and he was yeah. free. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, Series 3 absolutely nails the story out. I think it does it better than Series 1. Right. I think it does it considerably better than Series 1, even though Series 1 felt quite satisfying. I think Series 2 feels very unsatisfying. Series 3 does it about as well as Russell T. Davis... Well, it does it as well as Russell T. Davis does. Series 4, I don't know, I think he makes a mess of it. I think he's throwing things in there, like he throws you. I'm sure he throws unit in to the Sontaran two-parter because they're coming back, mm. or ahead of them coming back later. Yeah. But it just doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. There's no, there's no lines attaching the destinations. No. But it still, as a series, it still works. I mean, I think it still does what Russell T Davis sets out to do, which is again build a relationship between mm. the Doctor and Donna. And make that moment where the Doctor wipes Donna's memories really affecting. So maybe, maybe the story arc isn't necessary. Well, yeah. Maybe that's, oh, yeah, maybe yeah, that's yeah. the, uh, if that's his intention. <clears throat> but, it feel, but it feels like he's trying to do a story arc. Mm. That's the weird thing. He does yeah, a story arc yeah. so well in Series 3. Series 4 either doesn't need it, in which case it should get rid of it. Mm. But it feels like he's throwing things in... It feels like he's trying to do a story arc and not doing it. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And anyway, the thing about Donna at the end as well is I, I was completely emotionless during the bit where he rewrites her memory. And mm. it was only when he then goes and tells um, Wolf. But yeah, Bernie yeah. Cribbins, what he's done that it really meant. Uh, anyway, shall we talk about any more on. Series four, or should we just talk I mean, about the specials? Are tied to series four, pretty much. Well, it shifts better <clears throat> rather than Donna. It's, it's the four knocks thing. Yes, and it is, or it, and again, this it seems like in the waters of Mars, he's setting something up, mm. and then he resets it before you get to the end of time. Just briefly going back to uh, Star on Earth and the end of series four, though, you have got all those supposed story arcs all hit in one place, though, haven't you? With the with the climax at the end, you've got all the the loose ends 
Well, I say they're loose ends. There aren't any loose ends, are there, really? We, we know what everything is. It's just they're all in one place. The things that, like the, the lost bees and the lost moon yeah. and stuff like that, I think they're they're kind of built up as if they are loose ends, but they're not really loose ends. No. They're just sort of, oh, by the way, More this, is why, this is why we mentioned them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So they don't actually have any impact on that story. They're and just it's like, they're yes. tied up when they don't need to be tied up. <clears throat> well, we didn't mention, I didn't mention Rose turning up for that one okay. shot yeah. in, and she turns up for a shot somewhere else as well. So, I can't. so she's in... Um, She's in the opening episode, Partners in Crime. And she's in Turn Left as well. Yeah, she's in Turn Left, but she also turns up on a scanner screen in possibly Silence in the Library or something. Possibly. Uh, Where, yeah, I'm sure she turns up on a scanner screen or something. Shouting silently at the camera, yeah. Mm. Much like Madden Kabarian in in the series we were also watching at the same time. Well, completely unlike Madame Covarian. Because Madame Covarian, the reason she's turning up is because Amy's a ganger and she's yeah, being controlled. Yeah. yeah. And we're getting mm, glimpses yeah. into her being controlled. So yeah. Madame Covarian is a very definite part of what's going on in those episodes. Yeah. Whereas Rose turns up and then doesn't turn up until turn left. Yes. And it's like how, why and what difference did it make putting her into episode one, except to give the audience a shock moment, oh, that's Rose. Yes. But it doesn't work in any other way Mm. whatsoever. Mm. And when you get to turn left, in fact, the fact that she's saying I'm breaking through universes and turn left takes place entirely in a fictional universe inside Donna's imagination makes her appearance in episode one even less logical. Mm. So, I mean, it really works as a moment in the first episode, but the logic behind it is Mm. utterly ridiculous. Mm. And then when she does turn up in episodes 12 and 13, it's a great moment, and people moaned about the fact that Rose was back and said it spoiled the end of series two. Mm. But, I mean, looking at Russell T. Davis, there's no way he was going to get to the end of his tenure on the series and not have Rose come back. Yeah. Because what happens in series three with Martha is about what happened between the Doctor and Rose. Yes. What happens in series four with the Daleks coming back yet again is about what happens between the Doctor and Rose. It's all about the Doctor and Rose. Yes. And I, and I still think the coda at the end of the end of time where he bumps into Rose before she meets the ninth Doctor. Mm is the best and loveliest way to end the Doctor and Rose's story. I like that yeah, yeah, one that, bit at the end I of like that. that. I, like, yeah. I like that bit. The bit where he... <laughs> the bit with uh, Donna... Oh, no, I like the Donna bit. But the bit yeah, the Donna bit's fun Martha because there's character suits a character. The yeah. bit with the, the, the character from Human Nature. There well, was unnecessary bits. They were getting ones. people they could get, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Obviously. I mean, the Martha and Mickey bit is, oh, two black characters, let's marry them off to each other. That's awful. Obviously, that wasn't what they were intending, but that's how it comes across. Four knocks. Yes. Um, Necessary or irritating? I was fine with it. I don't think it was necessary. I think there there was a slight apocalyptic feel about it. There's something about prophecies that make you feel that something's coming, and it doesn't really matter what what it turns out to be it just means that there's something on the horizon and I think that worked quite well I mean it was probably one of the better things in 
Planet of the Dead. Yeah. This kind of mysterious character who, <laughs> who has these prophecies. Yeah, I, didn't know. Sort of, you know, I didn't like it. Mm. I didn't like it in that story. Um, but you've got... Um, if it had been a full season of talking about the four knocks... Oh, that would have been dreadful. But because it's just basically two episodes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then... Um, are we talking about four knocks? I think Fort Knox. Fort Knox wasn't in that series. What? Four knocks. Four knocks. Yeah. yeah. And I like the resolution to it as <laughs> well. On the same page now. Yeah. Um, what I didn't. Or now, you're building this up as if it's the end of the universe because David Tennant's leaving. Yes. But any audience worth who's been watching since the start knows that the Doctor leaves because something happens, an accident, whatever. Mm. When the ninth Doctor leaves at the end of Series 1, you've not been building up to the fact that he's going to leave mm. all series. And in fact, we find out afterwards there's a reason for that, because he wasn't going to leave at the end of that first series, although it feels like the most natural place in the Earth for him to go. Mm. But it's not been being built up for over a year. Yeah. When Tennant leaves at the end of the end of time, it's been being built up. Since that moment, you'd say, Dr. Donna, your song is ending soon. Yeah. Like two years earlier, mm. almost. Yeah. So they're building up for David Tennant leaving for 50% of the time he's playing the Doctor. Yeah. That's ridiculously unbalanced, isn't it? Although with the, with the, the series four nods towards it, I think at the time, even though I knew David Tennant was on his way out, it was also about Donna and the Doctor. Yes, it's about party. Donna and the Doctor. And that's that's fine because it's, there was a story about Rose and the Doctor parting and I tell you what the Doctor and Donna parting, that's that's it's, okay. It's the ood being the signifier yeah. that messes it up. Yeah. Because introducing the ood as the signifier of impending doom in Planet of the Ood makes it feel like yeah. they were portending Tennant's mm. ultimate death in the end of time right from that moment. Yeah, bringing the Ood back to do more portending. That's, yes, that, that was, was the mistake, it. I think. Yeah. I think it should Even have been something Brian else. Cox's yeah. voice. Well, it's when the Ood turns up... Oh, where did, well, there's an Ood turns up at the end of Waters of Mars, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Which is yeah. where he gets put back on the straight and narrow... By somebody committing suicide. Mm. Because obviously suicide is how you put people back on the straight and narrow. Um, <clears throat> but I mean... the Yes, the, you've got four specials that year. Four episodes in mm. 2009. And in all four of them, you're hinting at this Four knocks thing. Yes. I, I just don't know if I don't think it's the other way around. Because you've only got three stories, four episodes... Maybe you shouldn't have put that in because maybe that unbalances what those episodes are. When you come out of Planet of the Dead, basically all you're thinking about is Four Knocks rather than Lady Christina. I mean, I was expecting when I found out that there were going to be four specials or when I realised there were going to be four episodes, three stories. You were expecting them to be connected. I was expecting them to be a a sort of a big four-episode extravaganza story arc. That could only have happened if they'd have been four weeks in a row, couldn't it? I don't know. I don't know. It depends how you wrote it, I think. If you made it sort of each one self-contained, but with the master, say, 
Well, you maybe, could, yeah. You could, but... you could have done it, and you could have had it different with different stories for each one. If you made it powerful enough, it would have worked, I think. But that's what I was surprised by Planet of the Dead, how frivolous, self-contained yeah. it was, how independent it was. And I think well, that's, that's why the was... Four Knocks didn't quite work for me. Well, because... that was, it was months away from any other Doctor Who on either side of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think putting four knocks in there wasn't a good thing to do because, mm. like I say, you come out of it and four knocks is about the only thing about it you remember. But then Planet of the Dead isn't a, isn't a powerful enough story to be mm. unconnected to previous series and not connected to the final few episodes. It's not a Christmas special feeling. Episode. No, that's it's just there. <clears throat> yes, it's but I think it's going to be like. No, but I think it would have worked better without the four knocks. Poss- possibly, but I think it would work better <clears throat> without the four knocks and with a different story. Well, maybe. But maybe but you were, a bit more impactful. But if you were going to have that story sitting on its own months apart from any other Doctor Who, yes. you don't want people coming out of that episode thinking about something that's not even relevant to that episode. No. You want so, people at least just to watch the episode. So you make the, the episode anonymous enough. <laughs> to, well, to not stand they out. They didn't deliberately do that. No. The, the idea no. wasn't that it was. I mean, the most exciting thing about it is it's got Michelle Ryan in it. And at mm. that oh, point, Lee Michelle Evans. Ryan was just going downhill after yeah. failing at the Bionic Woman. Oh, and it's got Lee Evans in it. Uh, it was just before Bionic Woman. Oh, is it just before Bionic Woman? Th- yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure. Okay. She just done Jekyll. The other exciting thing is they go to Dubai. Yeah, to yeah, film. yeah. But without but no, those two, I mean, those are the. Oh yeah, when they were making it, I'm sure they thought they were making something that was like a Christmas special, yeah. but for Easter. Yes. It just didn't turn out that way. Mm. And thus, I feel it's completely overshadowed by the Four Knocks thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way it resolves at the end of the end of time, with um, the Four Knocks being Wilf, I thought was great. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice yeah. way to do it. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I can say about an arc across the specials is, and I sort of passed over this very briefly just now, I thought it was a really odd decision to reset at the end of... You seem to be setting something up in the waters of Mars, mm. and then you completely reset the Doctor back to zero for the start of the end of yeah, time. that's a disjoint. And there is a month or so between the two episodes, but it is only a month or so, mm. unlike Planet of the Dead, which is... What, four months after Christmas and five months, six months before? Basically, you've got the Doctor suddenly cheering up. Yeah. And you expect the Doctor to still be sort of... You expect from from what you know of the final two episodes, you know it's going to be slightly doom-laden. You know that we've seen previews of it. We know that there's a wasteland. We know that the Master's in it. Yeah, yeah. And to see the the Tenth Doctor be cheerful at the beginning, having been perfectly sort of set up for this doom-laden finale... It doesn't quite work. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird juncture. You get Gallifrey coming back, which is the end of a story arc we didn't know was there. Yes, <clears throat> yeah, you do actually. Yes, I should have brought that up. Yeah, and that is actually taking the series back to the time war. Yeah. But again, because um, obviously Stephen Moffat actually goes back to the time mm-hmm. war itself, and yeah. we didn't know that that was going to happen yeah. at the time of the end of time. But again, it feels like it feels like the time war is this big event that's happened, and it feels like the episodes that come afterwards are just sort of like spikes off. Mm. It feels like they're 
Bad Wolf and the Pardon of the Ways and the End of Time, they feel like tiny little satellites orbiting a huge great yeah. gravity. Which is the which is one of the good things about the time. You get the feeling that the time war is like happening too big, too. constantly yeah, in the background yeah. that you can't see, and you just see the effects <clears> of it. And it's the same in this story. Basically, you see the time war because it's three three yeah. time yeah, 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 yeah. stood in a glass <laughs> box or a white box, and that's it. So, so almost, you don't really see the time. Almost but... works in the same way yeah, that yeah. the others work, except you kind of want more because it is framed as this big sort of dramatic climax. I think the trouble is if Stephen Moffat had done... Well, we'll talk about this another time, mm. but I think if Stephen Moffat had done The Time War in The Day of the Doctor, yeah. he'd have had to show it as being the same as what he'd already done in The Wedding of River Song. Right. In other yeah. words, all of time happening at once. Yes. So yeah, it would yeah. have had to have been all of war happening at once. Yeah. But because he'd already done that, he couldn't really do it again. No. So I think that's why. But uh, I think, but I think, going back to the end of time, having Gallifrey come back, well, having Gallifrey come back, and it never actually connects, and it's a white <laughs> space in the corner of so a room. Get, Gallifrey rises, then Gallifrey falls. That's what I remember. This. Yeah, across about twenty minutes. Yeah. in the corner of a room. Yes, it felt very underwhelming, didn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, and in terms of five years of story arc, I suppose by this point, from going from the Nestines talking about losing their planet to the Time War, to actually seeing what happened to Gallifrey after the Time War, yeah, or during the Time War, the last day, or whatever it is, mm. it. It, it, it was an anticlimax, wasn't it? It was, but it, but again, I think it's saved partly by performance and partly by how we feel about <clears> Tenant <throat> and those moments of Tenant. And I mean, it's debatable, but I quite like the moments where he's sort of holding the gun and trying to decide who to shoot. <laughs> yeah, and there's real sort of dramatic weight, and that's partly the way he's performing it, but partly how he's been built up to. So there is a character development. Although, depending on how you feel about Tenen, you might have been screaming at John saying, just shoot the well, effing doctor. That's possible. Yeah. <clears throat> Which, I'm not saying that I necessarily no. was. No. <laughs> but it, it's one of those things. I, th- I think series one is really well done. I think series three is even better. Mm-hmm. I think series two and series four are unsatisfying. Mm. And I think the specials are even more so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking about in terms of the arcs. I yeah. think stories on their own individual me- merits. Yeah, you know, there are great ones and less great ones across the entire five years. But I think in terms of story arcs, I don't know. You just feel that Russell T. Davis did the best that he could do in series three, and really didn't know what to do when he got to the specials, and yeah. just kind of was. Flouncing around looking for ideas, really, that didn't really fit. Or desperately writing at two o'clock in the morning. Well, yeah, yeah. Chain, chain smoking. Well, we know he was, but... But, he, I mean... He was too busy emailing <clears throat> Benjamin Cook to... Yeah, well, to sit down and actually yeah. think about what he was doing. Because, I mean, it's desperately writing at two o'clock in the morning is fine if you know what your story is. Yeah. If you don't know what your story is, that's where the trouble starts, isn't mm. it? Yeah. And it felt like when he got to the end, he didn't know what his story was anymore. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if he wrote Four Knocks into Planet of the Dead with no clue whatsoever as to what it was going to mean until he got there. And then desperately had to write a reason for Wilf to knock on a door four times. Mm. Because that thing with two radiation chambers where somebody needs to be in one 
in order for the door of the other one to open. Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, shall we sum up D- Russell T. Davis' story arcs, I guess? I mean, are they... Are overall, are they satisfying more than they're not? Time's asleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a game of two halves, isn't it? Well, I'd put my top in sync. <laughs> I think in character, yeah. Are you just... <laughs> it's just a sort of into football pundit mode, yeah. No, but... I, I think, think in character terms thing, they it? are. Yeah, yeah. I think absolutely. they do. They do want. Sorry, and, and that's no surprise, though, is it? Because that's what he focuses on. He does focus on character. So, yeah, they do what they needed to do. I think in order I, I don't to achieve think, what he wanted to I achieve. I don't think in. I don't think if Russell T. Davis was listening to this conversation, I don't think he would say, "Well, I wasn't really trying to do that. I was, I was focusing on character. So for me, it wasn't a priority." Mm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's just that he did such a good job of it in series three. Yeah, you kind of yeah. wonder why it doesn't happen. More often, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're fairly. Well, it worked. It worked in season three, but that series three. But that's because the idea of the pocket watch is well, such that's a good a genius one. thing. Yeah, and that was Paul Cornell's idea. But the other <laughs> elements in their work. No, I didn't know it's not because the pocket watch isn't in the book. It, well, a version it was a cricket ball in the book. Yeah, yeah. But that the idea of the chameleon arch, the idea of the doctor, well, yeah, yeah, hiding yeah. himself as a human is the. But that's what he takes and idea. runs with. Yeah. But I mean, <clears throat> that idea works really well because he used that idea to its maximum. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the idea, any idea, can be used mm. to his maximum. It's just that yes. he doesn't he doesn't throw a single idea into series four that has an effect. On the Doctor, or on Donna rather, becoming the Doctor Donna at the end. No. Oh, he brings back the hand yeah. from the Christmas invasion. Mm. But again, that's not like, it's not clever and intelligent in the way he used the pocket watch. It's dumb and what the F are you doing <laughs> in the way he it, resets in the end of time. A, it, it's just occurred to me because I'm trying to think of a way of describing what he did with Bad Wolf and what he did with Torchwood. And it's almost like hashtags. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Hashtags. Oh, yeah. And it's hashtag lost planets. Yeah. Missing bees. Yeah. And it's hashtag, what's the hashtag in the third series? Is um, hashtag Saxon. Saxon, That's it. So Saxon. In fact, that probably was a hashtag by the third series. Probably, yeah. Mm. Maybe that was the clever thing to do at that point in time because it works. Well, he got massive audiences for the end. Maybe that's it. Maybe Russell T. Davis was writing it for the Twitter, Facebook. Stephen Moffat writes it for the catch-up, mm. watching it on mm. your tablets, yeah. rewinding, watching it in different order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. It obviously, works in terms of numbers. Mm. Just you know, overall, I suppose my last thought is it did work. Yeah, but it's but one of those. Mm. It's one of those chocolate cake. The entire meal's made of chocolate cake. Things where it's damn nice when it's going down your throat, but afterwards. You can't help but think... Don't put it down your throat. <laughs> wish there'd been something a little bit more. <clears throat> well, chocolate cake. I would... Okay, thank, thank God. I did say chocolate cake. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I missed that bit. <laughs> On that note, let us go to... <clears throat> uh, Logan's Look, part three. Or part two. 
depending on oh, where you okay. consider we started. I suppose for last week was part one because that was um, start of season 16. Right. And I suppose the original email was the prologue. So we're going to get the second half of the key to time. Mm-hmm. And this is from Logan, who's the son of Adrian Storag, mm-hmm. who's... Oh, did, what? I, I should have looked this up. Is he six? Around about six? Watching through Doctor Who for the and first time? A, and he's got a son? Tumbleweed. <laughs> anyway, young Logan is watching through Doctor Who in the right order for the first time and his dad is sending us um, just a few notes about his opinions on each. Androids of Tara. Um, the characters had to guess who was a real person and who was an android as they didn't want to kill an innocent person when they thought they were killing an android. Score, it was okay, 6 out of 10. Okay. Power of Kroll. It was weird that Kroll was the fifth segment. I liked the fact that Kroll was a huge monster and was so strong that it could smash the refinery pipes with its tentacles. I also like the fact that Kroll is stronger than the Yeti and the Cybermen. Score, I thought this story was great. Nine out of ten. Well, yeah, but kids, the things that they like are different things from the things that we like. Armageddon Factor, it was okay. I don't really have anything else to say about this story. Um, (laughs) Yeah, quite. The Key to Time is one of my favourite seasons so far from the fourth Doctor. Score for the Armageddon Factor, seven out of ten. It was okay. Overall, Logan's favourite story from season 16 was The Power of Kroll, while his least favourite was The Reboss Operation. Okay. On the other hand, okay. says Dad, my favourite story is The Reboss Operation and my least favourite, The Armageddon Factor. I can understand, he says, why Logan isn't so keen on The Reboss Operation, as it didn't make much of an impression on me either when I was a kid. With Robert Holmes' trademark dialogue and world-building, as well as a fruity performance from Ian Cuthbertson and an intense performance from Paul Seed, in addition to a lack of monsters, it is definitely a story that you tend to appreciate more as an adult than as a child. Mm -hmm. And that is Adrian Sturrock with Logan's Lun. Logan's Lun? Logan's Look. Okay. That was uh, Logan's Run. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Logan's Look, part two. And we'll have part three, well, maybe next time, or maybe the next time they've watched three more Doctor Who stories, depending on how quickly they'll get through them. Uh, Okay, next week, possibly Let's Kill Hitler. I'm not sure I'll have a chance to watch it, so I might have to put it off until the week after. Right. So maybe not, but we'll see. Let's Kill Hitler, or maybe the start of Moffat, or maybe we'll do something completely different. Okay. But until then... I was Simon. I was Matt. And I was JR. And uh, we'll speak again soon.
almost forgot that we'll speak yeah, again yeah, soon, yeah. Wow. Do you want to do it again? No. Okay. I'll just leave this in. Maybe we won't speak again soon. Well, we might not. I might get somebody okay. else in next time. No, Elton. But when we say, but when I say we'll speak again soon, I'm yes. talking to the listener, saying that people on the Blue Box podcast will speak to them again soon. Okay. I'm not talking about me speaking to you, Matt, again okay. soon. Okay. Okay. I don't. Good. 